The evidence around drug courts is really hard to gauge. Even if you're getting a desired outcome, you have to kind of still question what contributed to that. The same way harm reduction can't alone solve the overdose crisis and and over-incarceration and, and all these other things, drug court shouldn't be charged with that task or kind of held to that same standard too. The reason I think that they should be held to a higher standard though is because of what they ask of their participants. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. States sure loves to cage people. You might be heartened to know that in 2019, the U.S. incarceration rate fell to its lowest level since 1995, according to data from the Bureau of Justice Statistics that came out last year. Nonetheless, the U.S. still incarcerates a larger share of its population than any other country for which we have reliable data. According to Pew Research, at the end of 2019, there were just under 2.1 million people behind bars in the U.S., including 1.4 million under the jurisdiction of federal and state prisons and roughly 735,000 in the custody of locally run jails. For every 100,000 adult residents in this country, 810 of them are prison or jail inmates. Statistics like these can be shocking, but they can also be cited so often that they can lose their potency and can seem abstract or just the way things are. But it is completely immoral that the U.S. throws more people into cages than El Salvador, Rwanda, Turkmenistan, China, Brazil, Russia, and Turkey. A big driver for why the U.S. leads on all of this is, of course, the war on people who use drugs. It's not that everyone is in jail or prison because of drugs. Yet, as my colleague Chris Moraff often points out, many first or second offenses are for narcotics. And getting even a misdemeanor charge for substance possession or sales can bury someone in so much bullshit that the odds of being incarcerated for other shit is multiplied. Violating parole, three-strike laws, not being able to afford bail, etc. No matter how you slice it, the drug war plays an outsized role in this experiment in chaos. And there is no evidence that any of this criminal justice crap, this brutal way of policing society, makes any of us safer or healthier. In order to partially address this problem, some jurisdictions have promoted the idea of drug courts, which the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services defines as, quote, alternative to incarceration, drug courts reduce the burden and costs of repeatedly processing low-level, non-violent offenders through the nation's courts, jails, and prisons, while providing offenders an opportunity to receive treatment and education. Sounds great, right? Well, as you'll learn on today's episode, drug courts come with their own set of problems and in some ways can make situations worse. I'm Troy Farah and you're listening to Narcotica. We've got a great show for you today. Dave Lucas joined me and Chris. We talked about drug courts, drug testing, and so much more. But first, we want to tell you a little bit about Narcotica. We've been on the air for four years trying to cover drugs from a perspective of compassion, science, and evidence. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and all that. So do the like and subscribe thing, please. It does actually help us out. You can visit our beautiful website, narcocast.com, to find all kinds of episodes on psychedelics, opioids, stimulants, 
Learn more about drugs like naltrexone or abortion pills or how big pharma operates with impunity. Drugs are a big, big category, and they let us talk about all kinds of other aspects of social justice and society, from housing to reproductive rights. We have a lot more to cover and no intention of stopping this show anytime soon, but your help is what keeps us going. If you want to join about 70 other people who make Narcotica possible, just go to patreon.com slash narcotica. Patrons can request free stickers, which are personally mailed to you, and get other perks such as 30% off of our store. Speaking of which, you can pick up some new merch at narcocast.myshopify.com or just go to narcocast.com and click on shop in the corner. We've got t-shirts and mugs designed by the amazing artist Ryan Gray. We hope you like it. Thanks for supporting us. At Narcotica, we have bills to pay just like everyone else. Everything is getting more expensive, so it's very humbling that folks care enough about this little podcast that just wants to see some goddamn common fucking sense applied to drug policy. Thanks for listening. That's all the boring shit. Now on to the show. Our guest today is Dave Lucas, a clinical advisor, social work educator, and therapist committed to reducing the harms of the criminal legal and substance use treatment systems. He serves as a clinical advisor with the Health and Justice Action Lab. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Also with me today is Narcotica co-host Christopher Moraff, beaming from Kensington. How are you today, Chris? All right. I'm doing good. How about you, Troy? I'm, I'm great. It's uh, been monsooning in the desert, so it's not too hot. I'm pretty happy about this. Um, so, Dave, to start us off, um, you seem to do a lot of work in drug courts, Uh which thankfully I've never had to navigate. Um, but for everybody that I've ever talked to about this, it's uh, Kafka-esque to say the least. It is deeply bureaucratic and nightmarish and confusing and expensive. Um, but tell us, can you kind of walk us through this system, what it does and doesn't do and, and how people kind of uh, fall in the middle? Yeah, sure. I'll try to, give a brief summary of kind of what the model entails. So drug courts kind of at the core of the model is the idea that, um, you know, putting people with substance use issues who are, who are getting swept up into the justice system, putting them in jail does not do any uh, good. It doesn't help them with their substance use issues, with their social stability issues. Um, and in most cases, you know, the evidence shows that makes things work for worse for this population and more likely to actually end up back in, in jail. So the drug court model was kind of um, started as a response to over-incarceration of drug users as a result of, you know, uh, 70s, 80s, 90s drug policy and policing um, efforts. And so the whole idea is that this provides an alternative to incarceration, a treatment-based one. Um, I think a lot of the critique um, is comes from the fact that, you know, the treatment has retained some of the um, carceral elements of the justice system or the criminal legal system. Um, and so this is not just kind of treatment that exists in a vacuum as, as if you were, you know, using substances, wanted to make a change and you signed up for some treatment on your own. When you do it this way, it comes with a lot of um, mandates, you know, observed drug testing, court appearances, um, you know, paying fines and fees, um, having to, you know, do other types of work in the community to satisfy requirements in order to avoid um, your uh, prison sentence. Um, and so I think, you know, a lot of the critique just, again, flows from the fact that 
you know, it's hard to know to what degree the treatment field has been contaminated by its partnership with the criminal legal system. I think it's fair to say that it, there's no way for it to remain com completely um, unaffected. And so, um, you know, a lot of people, you know, will talk about their stories and feel like that they were um, treated poorly, maybe re-traumatized, uh, you know, infantilized, um, had excess liberties taken away from them. Um, and so you, you get those stories on the flip side, you also get a lot of these, these like, you know, I was blind and now I can see these redemption stories. You get a lot of people saying I went through drug court and it saved my life. Um, and so, you know, I think we, we can, we can say honestly that drug court for some people has, has helped them turn around things in their life, but that doesn't necessarily negate the fact that we know that there are a lot of practices that, um, have the potential to harm people and really do need to be looked at critically um, and reformed and in a dramatic way as long as we're still, you know, unfortunately relying on the justice system or the criminal legal system to um, deal with um, substance use, mental health and, you know, housing, poverty, all the other things uh, related issues. So, yeah, it sort of seems like it's uh, presented as a carrot and a stick situation. But it's really just a stick and a smaller stick situation. Like it, it's put forward as being like a more compassionate and like we, at least we're not throwing you in prison for ten years for having a gram of marijuana or something like that. But in a lot of ways, it's just as bad as like the regular court system. Can you talk to us about like some examples of that? Yeah, it's it's a very clever sleight of hand that the field has done because you know they're basically saying, well, you should never have been you know, sentenced to jail in the first place for your, for these issues. But then they also use the fact that you're in this program to kind of, you know, once you sign up, you have to do whatever we say. So, it, you know, they're kind of asking, they're kind of getting it both ways. They can say, well, if you don't want to do, this is a voluntary program. If you don't want to do the things that we're asking of you, you can go back into the regular justice system, even though we don't think that that's really the, the most ethical way to handle your situation. And then they come into drug court and then the drug court can kind of essentially do whatever they want um, in terms of, you know, moving people through the program or moving people back or kicking them out or graduating them, whatever it may be. Um, and again, you know, what's tricky about this is, you know, you mentioned carrot and stick or carrot or stick and smaller stick. You know, there's there's best practice standards. There's a lot of drug court research out there, but there's no real oversight there. there you can't go to a local court and tell them to do something. You the only thing that really what we've seen recently that's been effective in that area is the uh, enforcement of the Americans with Disabilities Act to ensure that, you know, court systems are not prohibiting and making accessible, you know, uh, addiction medicine for, for people, which, you know, was supposed to be the norm, was a recommended practice for years and years in the field. But just, you know, because you can't control what every individual court does was not happening. And so now you've got kind of an enforcement mechanism for that. But there's no real oversight. You can't, you know, you know, if a judge is doing something that's tantamount to malpractice, um, you can't get rid of that judge. You can't get rid of a prosecutor. You, you can't really do anything. Um, so that leads to some really, you know, you get some courts that are following a, a certain set of, you know, evidence-based practices. And then you get some courts that are, you know, just kind of doing whatever they want. Um, and that's not to say anything of, of you know, the types of 
resource deserts that some of these programs exist in where even if they wanted to provide medication, they can't. So they're just sending people to 12-step meetings at night, right? The MAT thing was a big problem here in Pennsylvania. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure if the case even originated from here or not, but, but uh, uh, read on Bucks County, Chester County, there were quite a few places that were, you know, you had to be off whatever substance, you know, but by the time to, grad, to graduate, if you were taking Suboxone or whatever. And I just found that to be so counterintuitive. That, that's a really good point. And that, and that's just kind of one way that, that medication is being kind of not properly administered or offered to people. That's just, you know, that's incentivizing them to, to taper off uh, in a, you know, potentially really harmful, potentially life-threatening way. Um, but, you know, a court like that might tell if, if they're being interviewed, um, you know, or researched, they might say, oh yeah, we let participants use these medications, but they, that doesn't, you know, there might be these other ways that they're creating barriers or incentivizing them to get off of those medications. So we really don't have a, a great handle on how the field at large is is making these medications accessible, um, you know, and if there's other types of barriers that, that are kind of more subtle that prevent people from using those medications that, you know, are, are kind of hard to uncover unless you are looking really closely. But I've done national work on uh, with drug courts and I've, I've kind of been all around the country. And, you know, if a judge doesn't like these medications or a prosecutor doesn't, or even a treatment provider doesn't, you know, believe in these medications, that can be enough. They might be allowed. But if a client is seeing that participants who are not using medications are having an easier time, they're being praised by the judge, they're moving through the program quick, more quickly, well, then I wouldn't use those medications either. I would try to do what that other person is doing to make my own life easier. So, you know, even if you legislate things, there are so many ways that these these programs can really kind of make your treatment decisions, um, you know, kind of constrained. Um, and it's not always easy to see that. It's not in the policy and procedure manual. It's not in their rule book. They won't even talk about it. It's just kind of built into the, you know, the DNA of the program. So it's really hard to, to um, rein in the entire field and get them on board with certain practices. And that's just, in the realm of, you know, addiction medicine. Um, you know, there's so many other practices that are all over the board, use of jail sanctions, um, drug testing, um, admission criteria, graduation criteria, um, those types of things. So, so they really, there's a saying in the field, it's not mine, but by one of the leading researchers in the field, if you've seen one drug court, you've seen one drug court. And it really is true. Um, it's, you know, there's no two um, programs that are alike. So you talked about how there's no real oversight for drug courts, um, but how evidence-based are some of these practices? Like, is there a lot of research suggesting that any of this stuff is actually that effective, that it actually helps people instead of, I mean, we can all agree. I mean, it's very obvious that throwing somebody in jail for substance use, uh, even for selling substances, is not, it, it doesn't accomplish anything except for making people that run prisons more uh, wealthy. So, so like what kind of evidence is there for that drug courts are a better alternative or even more effective in some sense? Yeah, I think, you know, there's smarter people than me to speak to the research, but I would say that there, there does seem to be in kind of outside of the drug court world, many scholars would say that the drug court research is as extensive as it is, is kind of, you know, it's hard to gauge the quality of it. It's a bit dubious. And I, and I say that because even as somebody who worked in one of these programs, you know, it's hard to, how are you measuring success? 
what if the practices you're using to get success, i.e. graduation, people kind of leaving the program and never returning to the justice system, well, what if your practices that contribute to that positive outcome are maybe unethical or maybe potentially harmful? Does that justify them? You know, it's, I kind of always use this analogy, like if somebody slapped me in the face every time I ate a bag of chips at night, I probably would stop eating chips at night before bed. But what if that person's not around? I'll go back to doing that, you know, go back to that habit probably, right? And, and um, you know, that's obviously an overly simplistic view, but there's, you know, people are resilient. People go into a program like this and maybe they hate it. Maybe they hate being told what to do. They hate the way they're treated. Um, but they're like, look, I'm going to just make the most of this. And, you know, I got to get out of this program. Maybe I can get some housing and I can, you know, I don't, I don't want to go to jail. So I'll just put up with whatever I have to, to get out of it. Um, and so you get a lot of people saying, you know, trying to put a positive spin on that experience. So, and I, and I, I would be, I'm not going to be the person to say like, well, you're, you know, that's false consciousness. You're, you're deluded here. You should really actually be critical. You know, that's their experience at this point, you know, they've graduated and, and, Maybe they've come out on, um, you know, better, better for it, you know, and then there's other cases where, you know, a drug court team has probably 10 to 20 people on it. You may have a peer support worker and a treatment provider who are really down with harm reduction and under cover of darkness, they're doing everything they can to support a client, get them through the program, be really patient-centered, trauma-informed with them. They know they're working in a broader kind of model that's like, you know, hard to work within, but they're doing their very best to be kind of like a buffer between that court and that participant. That happens. And it's what's tough about that is like, how do you find those people? How do you research that? How do you find out here and there if it's that person that's contributing to good outcomes? So, you know, that's a very roundabout way of talking about it's the evidence around drug courts is really hard to gauge. Even if you're getting a desired outcome, you have to kind of still question what contributed to that desired outcome and can we justify is it enough to justify that practice um you know are there and and if not what are the alternatives is it worth exploring kind of alternative ways to get there i'd like to make make note that drug courts are at least responsible if not primarily responsible for the proliferation of things like synthetic cannabinoids and ways to get around so our synthetic you know influx of synthetic drugs at least in some way, shape, or you know, form, is 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 was tasked with, you know, like the street hustlers were the ones smoke smoking K two at first, you know, to to pass their you know pass their test. So and that then that transitioned into the the mainstream culture. And um, I don't know how much uh, you would you would how much stock you would put into that or how much you've seen that, but uh, there are certainly people that are passing UDS that that are taking, you know, arcane analogs of things. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And I mean, in the early days, fentanyl was not detected in a lot of the drug testing, too. So folks were using opioids and it was they were getting negative tests and it was because they were using fentanyl. And obviously now it's synthetic cannabis. And then we've got, um, you know, other types of synthetics that are evolving so quickly that they're not necessarily getting tested. Kratom was another workaround for people. I mean, in my opinion, if you've got people using these types of medications while they're in your program, you're failing on a lot of fronts. You're failing to create a safe space where people can move through recovery in a, in, at a pace that works for them. You're, you're failing on a, you know, as therapists or counselors to have good conversations where somebody feels comfortable talking to you about the med, you know, whatever drug that they were using and what benefits they get from it and why they think that they can, you know, 
continue on with this and it's a safe route for them and it helps them, you know, get through whatever pain or, or you know, whatever it is that they're dealing with. Um, you know, if you've got a court that is dealing with a lot of drug tests, tampering or, you know, synthetic use to get around drug testing, to me, that shows that the problem is not your is not the participants. It's that you you have failed to create a space where people can be honest about what's going on for them in their life and what could be helpful. And, um, you know, I think sometimes drug courts tell on themselves a little bit by their obsession with trying to catch people with these kind of new types of drugs. Because if I was a therapist, I would want somebody to talk to me honestly. And I was a therapist. So I'm saying this kind of as somebody with the experience. I, I don't want to, you know, set them up to a put them in a lie detector test every time they're in my office and say, okay, let's talk about how your week went. And I'm going to, you know, you'll get a buzz every time, you know, you tell me something that's not true. My job is to create a, a strong enough kind of uh, trusting relationship with somebody where they feel they can tell me what they need to, and, and we can work with that. So, you know, it, the fact that what Christopher said is true and, you know, I think goes to show that that drug courts have gotten so kind of obsessed with making sure that, we're catching dishonesty um, that we've forgotten that all the other ways that we kind of organically work with honesty and trust in all other kind of clinical settings, you know, they've lost it because this is what we were saying during COVID. Like, don't forget, you know how to work with people, you know, you know, you should from your training, you should know how to get honest responses or authentic responses from your people. If you're building trust with them, you should, the, the drug test should be confirming what you already know. If you don't know that already, then, then you need to, do your work differently. But, you know, there's other harms that, that are produced by, you know, forced abstinence is, is an overdose risk. You know, if you were to seek treatment on your own, you would be working through your reduction of use or change in use at a, at a pace that works for you at a safe pace. But when you're told, look, you, you're going to go to either lose your housing, lose your kids, get kicked out of the program if you use, well, if you go from a daily kind of illicit fentanyl and, and meth habit to suddenly oh shit, I got to stop everything now or else I'm going to lose all this stuff. You know, well, we all know what, what's going to happen that first time that person uses and, and has kind of a, a recurrence of use, even if they're trying not to. They're, they're at, you know, immense risk. So that's an invented, that's, a, that's harm production, right? That, that's, yeah. that's a harm that doesn't need to be there. So a lot of the work that I focused on, I've, I've been trying to focus on in, this, in the US is finding the good practices, propping those up, finding the, the ways that drug courts are producing and inventing new harms that don't need to be there and trying to get kind of both of them in the same room and say, like, as long as this model exists, we want to really be focusing on, on these practices that are best practices outside of the drug court world that are, that are proven elsewhere, you know, in, in, in adjacent fields. And then really look critically, think critically about what harms we may be producing that we don't need to. If everybody in the field is well-intended as they, as they say they are, they, they should be excited to look at the things that are maybe causing harm and say, like, let's fix that. And sometimes we get, sometimes I hear that and sometimes I don't. It's, it's you know, like a lot of these kind of big complex fields. Yeah, that, that is a great point uh, about the synthetic drugs, because there are a lot of unknowns about some of these chemicals. They're sometimes uh, euphemistically called research chemicals. Um, they're basically like... <laughs> These molecules that were cooked up experimentally a long time ago and maybe just like in a paper somewhere obscure and then, you know, some somebody finds them and decides, oh, I'm going to start selling this because it gives a psychoactive feeling. But 
there's not a lot of research or any research other than maybe some animals if you're lucky um and because people are trying to skirt the i mean a lot of times people get in trouble for these drugs and the judge is like what are you taking this for but it's not even illegal and like that you can get in trouble for just because it's just a weird chemical that comes in a package that says not for human consumption and that's just like i i really like what you said about that being harm production instead of like of harm reduction yeah i i think one of the problems going back to the carrot and stick model is that when drug courts are at their best they are looking they're trying to learn about the person's relationship to drugs and whether or not that relationship to drug use actually is related to why they're in, involved in the justice in the criminal legal system is is it is it actually the reason why they've been ensnared in the system or not and if that if and i would say as a participant you can tell the difference you can tell when somebody really cares about you know what do these substances do for you why what are the, what are the benefits that you get from them even though you know there's risks what are the things that they do for you if you're not having that conversation, then you don't get to learn about these other new substances and why they're, why they're interested in using them. Is it just curiosity? Is it some other kind of benefit? But as soon as you create kind of a paradigm where if you use, you're in trouble. If you use, you have, you're non-compliant. You shut down the conversation. There's an, a whole host, of, you know, this, this DNA in every use, every time a, a person in a context, in a, in a mandated treatment context uses and we don't get to learn about that if we go in either kind of black and white direction if we if we say you know oh, it's no big deal whatever it's just to use here's your here's your penalty go do some community service and come back or we make we catastrophize it you know and to use a, a counselor language and we make it seem like it's the end of the world and you know you're one more use and you're kicked out of the program you're going to go do your two years we when we kind of operate in those kind of extremes we don't learn anything about the relationship that person has to the drugs and then we end up kind of again in this like panic you know and hysteria you know it's we're, we're kind of stuck in this cycle that we've had for years of drug policy in, in this country about just like oh a new un unknown drug and let's it's obviously going to take over you know the the drug using world and bring all these harms and we'll never know about it we'll just speculate and we'll let all you know police officers and new and, and other people who don't know anything about this tell us what the, what this means and um and in some ways we have like this audience that that could really help us understand these substances and we could learn so much about them but because we've set up this punitive model we you know everybody's scared to to actually talk about these things and, and again it's it's you know it's not that it should be happening through the, the criminal legal system but you know this is still such a, a reality that we may as well figure out a way to make it um, more helpful, less harmful. And I just want to say one thing that, you know, and this is not entirely relevant to, to your question, but there's, there's a lot of thinking that decriminalization would, will spell, would spell the end of drug courts. Um, but Canada had basically a, a de facto decriminalization or, you know, a reduction in, in drug arrests. And we've seen it in Oregon and Washington state. and it's not, it's going to reduce numbers, but most people in drug courts, at least, you know, in terms of who sh who's technically supposed to be in a drug court, is not there for drug possession. They're there for theft, for maybe stealing a car, breaking into a storage unit and, and things like this that actually carry a, a prison term. So, you know, something that I think is always important to think about is 
we don't want to just replace drug courts with another with drug court light. But we still do need to figure out a way for people whose substance use is connected to why they're in the justice system, why they're over-policed, why they're overly visible, why they're targeted. We still need to figure out a way, another alternative to incarceration, you know, that, that doesn't bring with it all of the carceral elements that the current model does. Um, I don't exactly know what that is, and I don't know what jurisdiction's ready to do that yet, but, you know, I think that's, I think it's needed. We haven't addressed homelessness. We haven't addressed the illicit drug supply. We haven't addressed wage inequity and, you know, all these types of things that bring people into the, into the system. So we're going to need something kind of in the interim. That's a bit of an aside, but. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, a good friend of mine, you may know him, Jeff, D- Jeff Dini was a drug court, uh, you know, he was in the, in the drug courts for a while. And he said the, the number one question people would ask him, you know, when he, when, you know, when he asked, how can I help you? Well, you can you get me a job? Can you get me a job? You know, and it was, that was that was it, you know, and uh, it seems like drug drug courts also perpetuate what is, I believe, now scientifically accepted fact that there is no addictive personality. That not every drug is going to have the same impact on on each person, and and yet the way it's systemically set up is to penalize for you know any even the slightest use of any drug. In the, you know, in the spirit of trying to be consistent and follow some kind of like evidence based path. You do you you. It's hard to kind of be individualized with people, as as you're saying. So, you know that everybody's kind of treated as if they've got a severe s- s- substance use disorder, regardless of kind of the nature of that use. Um, and often a drug court is only partnered with a few treatment providers, so that means you only get a couple of treatment options available to you. Um, but you know, to to your, what you referenced in from from Jeff Dini, who I who I really appreciate. And he's been one of my favorite people to talk to about drug courts. Um, and one one of the first people I spoke with when I moved here. But he, he's right. I mean, people want a job and they want a place to live. And that's it's amazing what that will do for somebody's um visibility to the criminal legal system. It's it's like those are the biggest changes. My my program in Toronto, we were dealing with, you know, our our population over the years got progressively more acute in terms of social needs. So we we essentially shifted to become a, a harm reduction housing first oriented model. And our goal was basically we can't ask anybody in our program to do anything until we've provided housing for them. And that that was, you know, in most cases harm reduction housing because a lot of our clients were not ready or interested or, you know, it stopping use just wasn't even a safe option at that point. So our goal was just get them get them housing. Um, and for those who like to live rough, because there are a few people out there like that, you know, sometimes we'd get them a place and they would continue to live rough for a little while until they were ready to use that unit and would sit sit empty, you know, but it was that was their process. And eventually they would move in. But housing and a job, that's what most people really wanted. As, as they often say, you can't take something away without without replacing it. And if you're going to take away, you know, or you're going to tell somebody you can't this current life you're living is just going to land you back in the justice system. Well, what are you offering? And I think drug courts, I think what they could do a better job of, and the good ones do this, but what the field in general could do a better job of is say, well, what are we offering, you know, participants that they can't get otherwise? Like what are our, if we have these obligations and requirements on them, our obligation should be, there should, we should be able to get somebody addiction medicine if they want it same day. If somebody needs, at least provisional shelter, that should be offered same day. If we can't do that, we should never be asking anybody to do anything else. But it doesn't really work that way because, of course, we, you know, 
we're still working with this model as if it's an extension of the war on drugs and it's criminality that brings somebody in. So drug court is a favor as opposed to and a privilege rather than drug courts have an obligation to provide, you know, X, Y, and Z. It's more drug courts have an obligation to provide X, Y, and Z because we get good results from it. But for me, that's an ethical and moral obligation. If the court's going to say you need to do these things, the court should at least be on the hook for, you know, a bare minimum of housing, employment, you know, and primary health care, uh, you know, among some, you know, other other key uh, services. Yeah, yeah. I think that really touches on a point that we really like to make on this podcast, which is that a lot of drug use is rational. People, some people have this perception that the drug users are just these idiots that take whatever and they're just trying to get high and evaporate their feelings or whatever. And I think that probably exists, but it's not really, that's not a typical person. Like people have a good reason for using a drug. Um, a lot of people that use meth uh, are treating undiagnosed or untreated ADHD. And Adderall is really not that different from meth. Um, a lot of people that take opioids are treating untreated pain or even depression. Opioids can be antidepressants. There are millions of examples. Um, and if drug courts aren't, in general, if society isn't offering like access to safe, regulated drugs, then... Yeah, people are going to take whatever they can get, even if it's not tested, even if it's adulterated or whatever. So I think that's just like a really great point. Um, and and when you were talking about like the limited treatments that are offered, like maybe a drug court has like, hey, you can go to these three providers. Two of them are absence based. The other one is naltrexone. You know, like that's not really an option. And if the option between that and failing in a drug court is going to prison for a longer sentence... I mean, there's just so many aspects of society that are fucked up and the drug court is not even supposed to address. It's no wonder so many people like struggle with this system. One more point I want to make is just that it becomes so frustrating when people on Twitter will post pictures of people in the Tenderloin or in Vancouver on the east side and be like, look at what drug use is doing to these people and how can you dare say that decriminalization would make things better or that we should have a safe supply or whatever. And it's like blaming all these other systemic failures on the drug use when at the end of the day, using drugs in those situations is probably one of the smartest things you could do. I know that's kind of crazy to say, but if I was in that situation, I would want something that was going to help me and drugs can help in some sense. They can also fuck you up, but they can also help. I think that one of the things that really helped me as a, as a clinician who entered the field very green and without, with, you know, very minimal expertise, which is another thing. There's a lot of people in this field who do not have a ton of expertise, but they get a lot of authority uh, through the courts. But, you know, I always say if somebody's drug use doesn't make sense, make it make sense. Yeah. Like work with them and make it. There's always a reason. People aren't just these kind of robots or zombies work, moving towards risk for no reason. There's a, everybody does does something because of some kind of benefit, and that is your starting point. That that is the thing that will unlock what that person really needs, kind of the most first and foremost in in their life. And I think if you don't get that, then you're just another voice. You know, it's still kind of like that Reagan era voice of that that just doesn't get it and will never connect with that person. And, and you you're it's almost impossible. To support somebody because then it ends up kind of like charity you know i pity you i feel so bad for you i'm going to be really nice to you because i care about you and i'm worried about you but it's never there's never a real connection in that like i really under i get it i get why 
based on your life, your circumstances, and all the bullshit, this, this messed up world, why this makes sense. Because I don't care if somebody uses a risky drug because they're bored or because it's pain or because it's trauma or whatever, or because it's just, it's fun for them. It's partly, you know, to, to quote Jeff Dini, I think he's talked about it, that it's, you know, maybe not discussed enough how much drug use is just a way to deal with ennui the boring existence of our, you know, this late stage capitalist, um, you know, mess of a, of a world. And, yeah. you know, I think that's okay. Just if somebody's is using drugs for that reason, whatever, but, but what else, since you're in this program and I'm here to help you out, is there anything else in your life that we can work on to just kind of make things a little easier for you? Because you and I both know being in jail is pointless. It's going to cause harm. So let's just try to avoid that. You know, one one thing that comes up in, in the drug court world a lot is people say, well, that guy's just trying to avoid jail. You know, he doesn't really want to change. And I'm like, wanting to avoid jail is actually a good thing. Yeah, We don't want people to think that they belong in jail because they use drugs. I, it's so crazy to me that, that that's just a normal, you know, that's an issue that people see with people coming into these programs is that, you know, that's their primary motive. Well, good, good. That's That means that they still have hope for their life, be, you know. They want some liberty. They want some. They still want to enjoy their life and not be, you know, um, exposed to all the all the obvious harms that come come with with jail. And to me, though, I was always like, okay, so let's work with this. Nobody is exactly is perfectly satisfied with their life. Let's find the area that we can we can work with. But again, this is kind of it's not as satisfying. You know, I think the three of us are all come from the same perspective with this, but this is just not. The justice system, a judge and a, and a prosecutor, you know, who are appointed or elected, you know, they want to be able to point to results. They want to say, we graduated this many people in this amount of time. This is how we're spending our money. We saved this amount of money. This, you know, they want to be able to kind of show with data, you know, their outcomes. So the things I'm talking about maybe slows down the process a little bit. It's a little harder to measure, but and I think that's why it's kind of hard to integrate maybe, um, you know, across the board. So just to throw a little wrench into what we were just talking about, um, this would have been this would have been in the '90s, maybe before drug courts were even a thing. But that there were there were treatment centers for. Uh, I'm thinking of one in particular that I went to um, that was ostensibly for people with uh, uh, you know problems with addiction. But when I was there, there were two of us that had addiction addiction problems. And all the rest were drug dealers trying to get out of jail earlier, you know, and then they were, you know, they, they looked fine, looked the part, you know, they were, they were used to go you know, race foot races around, you know, I mean, they weren't, and, and they actually had to separate one, the one of the drug users, um, cause he just wasn't integrating well with, you know, it was, it was messing with his, uh, recovery, you know, and the, all these guys talked about how they're going to get back out on the street and start turning running and getting, you know, I mean, it was just. It was just their way. If, if they said they had a drug problem, they knew that they could get early release, you know? Yeah. And again, you know, that, that kind of just reveals another, you know, broken piece of the system where we've created something that could be a potential solution. And, and now we're kind of work, we're, you know, ensnaring these other people who, you know, could, you know, first off, if you're, if you're in a drug court and you don't actually have kind of a really problematic, uh, you know, relationship with drugs, you're probably, going to end up worse off the statistics show that people who are brought into drug courts who don't really um belong there people with like you know just kind of casual drug use um or you know have never really been in the justice system before 
um, or, you know, are primarily in, in the world of drugs for, for selling or trading reasons, you know, their outcomes tend to be um, pretty bad. I used to have a couple guys on my, on my caseload who I knew were sellers first, users second. Um, and you know what? Generally speaking, their life wasn't that great. Their life usually was, they, their clothes were a little bit better and, you know, they could kind of keep it together. They could keep, make appointments a little bit better. But generally, you know, they had their shit that they had to work on. And, you know, if I, my challenge was always like how to get them to be authentic about what they still needed to work on. If I, if I had to work with them anyways, and I wasn't going to sit there and accuse them of being a drug dealer and, and get them out of the program. I was going to try to make the, the, make it worthwhile and, and as well and try to protect the other clients I was working with so that they weren't getting kind of, you know, um, taken advantage of. Of course. Yeah. And there, and of course there's crossover. There's a lot of crossover, at least certainly here in Philly between the drug sellers and drug users. I mean, all, I think most, if not all of the street, like lowest level drug, drug dealers are, are a lot of them have drug habits as well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, by the end of it, I just felt like I ran men's groups they were just, groups for, for men who were living kind of on the margins, whether they were selling or using or both, you know, they were people who generally had trauma histories, um, you know, come, came from low income backgrounds or, you know, they just couple wrong turns and, and that's the world they end, ended up in. And they either wanted to stay there and just, you know, live a little bit more stably or they wanted out and they wanted to reconnect with their family and we'd work on that. But, you know, the drugs were kind of a part of the picture, but so often it's just one feature. I mean, the reason why a lot of people we know this that end up in, you know, in drug using communities for these long stretches is because it's community. That's the other thing, too. And, and one one other piece with drug courts is they really are big on getting out of the drug using world. Stop associating with people who are, you know, from that world. And that's just like talk about. I mean, imagine the three of us suddenly just lost our jobs tomorrow. Not only do we lose our jobs, we're not allowed to associate with anybody from our field anymore and we're just told yeah i got to do a brand like that is completely life and identity altering yeah and without replacing it you know just because you're in a group room with a couple other dudes from drug court doesn't mean you have a new community you've got that maybe three or four times a week but that's not you know you can't those aren't friendships that's not trust that's not mutual aid and support um and it's not somebody who's you know maybe bearing witness to your experience for the last 10 years living on the street that so that's another piece that i that I think drug courts could do better with, or, you know, the practitioners in that field is understanding that, you know, people, if you're asking them to stop using, that means that they lose their community, that their primary activity, often their primary coping mechanism, um, you know, their nickname, you know, what they're good at. Are they the person who's good at like, you know, giving up the, you know, are they the person who can like, when everybody sits down after you bought your drugs and gets it all ready for everybody. Like some people I remember we used to be so proud of that was their thing, right? Or are you the guy in the group who's the best at boosting to make sure, you know, in a pinch when everybody needs, needs a fix, you know, yeah, everything yeah. comes with an identity. And if you're not working with somebody to replace, but what happens in the drug court, you know, context is you're really encouraged to just get rid of all of it. It's, you know, and what we know from the world of psychotherapy is that if you if you learn about your this yourself as these kind of like Jekyll and Hyde characters and you're trying to just suppress one version of yourself, it'll never go away. You have to integrate these people. Yeah, like recovery involves integrating all parts of you and not necessarily um, demonizing the drug user self and your and or yourself just for the fact that you were using drugs. 
drug courts don't really embrace that concept. They actually do the opposite. They kind of want you to walk away from from that world and leave it all completely behind. And certainly there's some practicality to that because maybe that's the only way some people will ever get out of the justice system. They've never left that. They've never left that four square block area and you know in, in a residentially segregated city like Philadelphia their families yeah. there they're you know and you're telling them they can't you know where they're going to go yeah yeah I sometimes will talk to somebody in in you know who works in the court system and say do you know what chosen family is do you know you know when we talk about drug using communities you know when somebody says that's my aunt or that's my cousin or that's my you know my mom, when they say that you know that that often doesn't mean you know, they're actually related, but this is their family. This is the people that, that help them survive. And, and, you know, if they're at risk, if they're doing sex work, this is the person who kind of helps them navigate that, or, you know, and we're pulling people out of this without giving them any other resources, um, like almost overnight. And again, that to me is, that's a, a form of harm production. It's not respecting that that person has roots and, and, and important connections. Um, and it's forcing somebody to, to, demonize um, a part of their world that, you know, whatever risks are, exist, those people somehow help mitigate them and, and, and help them get by and give them that, that additional sense of meaning. So these are, you know, this conversation where the direction's headed is, is it's hard to kind of impose this, this lens into criminal justice conversation. But I think the most important thing that can maybe lead there is to look at the black and white practices, things like drug testing, the use of, of sanctions, the use of like the stick when somebody, just because somebody uses um, or they miss a group and, and try to get away from kind of these black and white responses to things. And, and I think that's kind of the, the entry point to um, really transforming this model until it's no longer serves a function. You know, we want to see drug court participation diminish because we want upstream solutions so that people are getting these things without having to access them through the justice system. A guilty plea at the end, at the entry point of a drug court should not be, you know, your your ticket to housing, your ticket to a doctor, your ticket to med- addiction medicine, if that's what you want. Um, but, you know, when I worked in Toronto, I used to think like, man, this drug court is seems like the easiest way for somebody who's using drugs and homeless. The easiest way for them to get housing is to get into this program. And that seemed really tragic. and. Um, Who's making money off this? Like, like, let's talk talk about well, what, there's a this is a, this is a, an incentivized program, obviously. I mean, and and there's people that are that are are stakeholders and entrenched in keeping it the way it is, right? The status quo. Yeah. What is the what is the benefit? To who's looking? Who's 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 fighting against reform? Well, I'll just say uh, before commenting on who's fighting against reform, I'll just say there's you know there's a lot of industries that are connected that that are survive off of um, problem solving justice, whether that's drug courts or other types of kind of alternative to incarceration models. And that's information management systems. So tracking all of a person's movements throughout the justice system and treatment and, and healthcare, and collating all of that information. And, and so that, you know, all that data can be tracked and, and evaluated and analyzed and used to get more funding. There's, you know, People create those programs. There's all the compliance monitoring, ankle bracelets, GPS, breathalyzers, um, you know, sweat patches, hair tests. Um, there's sober housing. There's for-profit treatment. There's all the billing that have Medicaid billing that's related to drug testing. Again, I mean, there's a lot of. Um, I mean, I think 
you 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 both probably saw this, but when Oregon decriminalized um, all drugs, there was some outcry from the treatment field who thought, well, how are we going to get people into our programs if they're not mandated through the justice system? Which again, what an indictment. How good are your services if you can't get people to come unless they're forced to come? And yes, I understand that it's, you know, a lot of people who are in the throes of really problematic use. They're not walking up to treatment centers often on their own, whatever. Why would they? You know, most treatment centers have, we have so many reasons to not trust healthcare and and our treatment providers, you know, just as, as we don't with the justice system. So, yeah, I don't know if that really answers your question, but I think, I think anybody who, you know, in terms of like pushing back against reform, I'm sure those fields probably are not interested in it, but they probably, they stay out of the conversation. We have like leading voices in the drug court world who probably just don't think that drug courts would work well without some of the things we've talked about, without the sanction incentive and sanction model, without drug testing, without kind of this, you know, big role of the judge, you know, you know, it's a big part of the model is like the connection that the participant has with the judge. I think there's a lot of things that people are under the impression that if you got rid of these things, drug courts wouldn't even work and it would spell the end of it. So let's just keep going with what we have. Um, So, you know, you'll never hear anybody just saying outright, I don't want, we don't want reform. They'll say, this is an evidence-based practice. We have years of research backing this up. So, you know, um, but what's tough is there's no, it's really hard to do a double blind in the drug court world. The main critique of the research in the drug court world is that it's really hard to, to compare a control group to the, the critic, a, a proper control group for, for, to, to measure against drug court participants. Right. Um, since you brought up Oregon and uh, Measure 110, um, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts on this. And, and maybe I should ask somebody you know, that actually lives in Oregon. But, you know, <laughs> uh, what do you think of the, how it's going? Because a lot of people are like, saying, hey, look, crime rates have risen in Oregon or whatever. Um, which I don't even know if that's true. Uh, and, and then they say, well, this is because of this decriminalization law. Like, how can you just let, quote, criminals run around and, and now it's making everything worse? Like, I, I kind of want to talk about other areas of reform, but, you know, do you feel like Measure 110 has been successful or unsuccessful or is it too early to tell? I think I think it's for... It's it's too early to really know because the types of things that you need in order to make one measure one ten successful, from what I've read, I think my sense is that measure one ten happened really quickly in terms of you know they didn't have decriminalization and then they did and they didn't have necessarily the treatment and the services needed to you know and, and a whole kind of infrastructure to support people in an upstream way. If if you're going to kind of remove that pathway to services you still want people to access those services but i don't think in oregon necessarily there was the funding and those and the availability and the infrastructure to get people connected to the services that keep them out of the justice system um and so maybe we haven't seen the best results yet in terms of just i don't know the arrest rate numbers i don't know if they're if if that's just kind of fear-mongering headlines or if, if that actually if there's any truth to that but from what i can what i've learned from people i've spoken to there I think there's been it's been tough to provide adequate, sufficient services to people, um, even though there's going to be funding for that. It's just, it, you know, you can't just they don't open treatment centers the way they open up condo buildings. Right. They you don't get them at the same same pace um, and they don't open up public housing the same way they do condos. So I think 
I think the problem is Measure 110 is, is about reducing pointless arrests, not only pointless, but the kind of arrests that, that cause more harm by bringing people into the justice system for just possession, which should never, people in, dr- in drug court should never be in drug court just, just for possession, by the way. The statistics, even the most conservative, um, you know, drug court researcher will tell you that is the wrong population for drug courts. They should not just be in there for possession. So but at least decriminalization should reduce those types of arrests. Um, but I think Oregon probably needs more time to, to use, you know, the funding that they're going to they're going to have, um, you know, to ramp up services that 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 actually make kind of more of a, a population level difference for, for people living on. Right, right. It's like we were talking about earlier, like there's all these other aspects that are, you know, driving poverty and driving crime. That if you remove one aspect of it, which is a you know a step in the right direction, it's not going to solve everything. Like a lot of people are critical of harm reduction because it didn't cure cancer or something ridiculous. Like it's not designed to do. Um, and I often sometimes have this like sort of paranoid conspiracy theory thought that's like some harm reduction measures that get passed are designed to fail because they're not designed to address every other aspect of society that's failing um and so that the the drug warriors can look at can step back and say hey, look this this is measure 110 is not is not working therefore why should we end the drug war you know what i mean like if you're not going to provide health care or housing to people and you're not going to see a difference in homelessness or crime on the streets then i mean the drug war is sort of even almost irrelevant to, to that it's like it's just a tool of oppressing poor people i mean that's that sounds a little almost too uh, leftist for me, but like it's true. That's that's why these laws were designed. I mean, that's historical. Yeah, I would just say, you know, and in this, in the by the same token, I can, you know, to some degree with drug courts, we want to be fair to the to that field and say, you know, you're not drug courts can't solve the overdose crisis. They can't, you know, that's not really with it. They can't solve homelessness. I mean, drug courts. Are not really should not be in charge of making America more sober. It shouldn't be in charge of housing people. It shouldn't be in charge of the overdose crisis. What it should be in charge of is making sure that everything that they ask of somebody in order to ensure that they can justify to their jurisdiction somebody not going to jail for certain you know things that have affected community safety. You know that they're providing in addition to, or in, you know, kind of to offset those obligations of the participant that they're offering adequate, good quality, high quality evidence-based services, um, you know, in equal measure. That's really it. But drug courts shouldn't be here, you know, the same way harm reduction can't alone solve the the overdose crisis and, and, uh, you know, over-incarceration and and all these other things. Drug courts shouldn't be charged with that task or, or kind of held to that same standard too. The reason I think that they should be held to a higher standard, though, is because of what they ask of their participants. Like, look, if you're going to ask this much, you better be offering the same, if not more, so that that person is drowning in good services, and good treatment to the point where no matter what happens, their situation, their life ends up better. Like, if you can't say you're doing that, if somebody is sitting in jail for 150 days waiting for a treatment bed before they can even start drug court, and the first one that's available doesn't even accept methadone or buprenorphine, you're not doing your job. You know, you are a harm producing program. That is, that is, you know, you should shut your doors until you can fix that. But that's something that, you know, exists all over the country. 
and and I think that to me is maybe the the biggest issue is just is just kind of what goes on that we don't know about. You can create all the standards in the world and say these are the best practices. Please, drug courts, do this. But if we don't really have any infrastructure to to really kind of keep an eye on things, you know, we get the we get the critiques that we that that we deserve. I think this is a good place to wrap up. But uh, before we do, I I wanted to see if Chris had any other questions, um, and I also wanted to ask about places that you see that are sort of moving in the right direction on this issue, like other examples that are of drug courts, perhaps you know doing stuff that is actually helping their their i don't know if you call them clients or participants or victims or what you know but people who are in these systems that are actually benefiting from them and how yeah i don't i wouldn't feel comfortable necessarily pointing to a particular court or jurisdiction but i've i've spoken to practitioners before who um really are approaching the work the way we've talked about it today which um have kind of like that systems level lens and I think it exists. I think that they feel like outliers and, and almost like um, like an outcast in, in the world. And, and so we need to figure out maybe how to bring them together so that we can kind of have some more, um, you know, widespread change. They, they do exist. I, I present often and do these webinars and, and go to conferences. And what I'm always taken aback by is how many people come up after I'm done and say, it's so nice to hear somebody talk about things this way and you know if i was if i was talking about these things with any other type of clinical audience nobody would come up and talk to me but in the drug court world it's it i think it's somewhat rare so i know that they exist i know that there's people who would like to um who have ideas and have a very practical uh, you know they're not we need to get something that's that exists between let's abolish drug courts and let's leave them the way they are even if you believe that drug courts are ultimately the wrong solution, we do need something to get us to that point. Um, and I and and I do think that there's a lot of people in in this country who have ideas about how to make things more patient centered, safer, more overdose prevention friendly, um, and to try to kind of just really pull apart all all the remaining pieces of the war on drugs that that still color the core practices of, of the field. And I still think that there's a way for, for the system to kind of really be helpful and be, you know, more service oriented than, than kind of carceral um, as it has been. It's not a very specific answer, but I think that's, I, th- I think there is some, some, some hope there. Well, I like what you said about Toronto um, because I, I think that if you're in drug court for committing a crime, you should not be policed for things that are not criminal. And, and drinking and, and if, if if marijuana is legal in your in your in your county you know, it, it it's just you know you're it, it's it just doesn't make any sense you know so I mean I don't know how how pervasive that is I think in in the in the states it's probably pretty pervasive that you're tested for 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 certainly for marijuana I think uh, there's been movement like you said on the on the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act because that always that always seemed like a terrible idea for me. It's terrible that that medical professionals can't even take the 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 drugs that that they're prescribing other people to take. You know, for for the same problem, um, people lose their license for that. Uh, and, and you know, so uh, we have these mixed messages that we're sending, and 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 certainly getting away from sending those mixed messages and being you know really clear about why you're here is 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 important. Yeah, I agree, and you know just. To, to wrap up with, with, you know, an example of change that is possible 
the Toronto Drug Court, it wasn't always like this, but the Toronto Drug Court in the last couple of years has graduated, you know, back when I was there and even recently, they've graduated people who not only are they using cannabis, but they're using, you know, occasionally using crack. Somebody recently was using, still using opioids, like, you know, street, not prescribed opioids, but like occasionally used heroin and still graduated because of all of the other things that they had kind of accomplished while they were in the program and all the other signs of stability and, and work that they had put in. And the court basically said, what are we holding on to this person for? This, they're doing really good. They've, they're, you know, they've got education on overdose prevention and harm reduction. They've got, you know, they're, they're either in school or working and they've got social connections um, and they've, you know, done their best. And we don't have any indicators saying that this person is a, is a threat to the community um, you know, they barely were in the first place. Even mm -hmm. that concept is so overblown. But and to me, that's a really good sign. If 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 treatment courts, first off, I would love to just rename the whole kind of field as like housing and health justice uh, courts, because if you rename it, you could shift the focus right away to services and and you could focus on, you know, social stability and, and, and person, you know, and and health first and then you know everything else would come secondary and you could graduate people for just kind of getting things in order and getting their life to a, a better place than it was and the drug use would be secondary um but anyways that's that's kind of a pipe dream but i but i, I would just say that it is possible and, and in toronto the fact that there are, people can leave the program getting a dignified exit avoiding jail even if they're continuing to use uh you know their their primary substance that's a that's a big step that is starting to kind of take out the prohibition you know uh, it's it's teasing out some of the prohibition threads that that have always colored the the model since its inception uh well do you feel optimistic about the future of drug courts the things changing and uh the direction things are going i don't know i don't know how to separate my thoughts about drug court from the broader political u.s political climate you know <laughs> i think things swing back and forth and i've you know like i said at the beginning you know i've i've Put out some writing on this and the response I've, i got really good positive response from people in the field and i got really really negative response as well from people who thought that you know it was too critical and and asked i was asking too much of the field so it's it's hard to know i know that you can do it kind of at a it almost feels the same way thinking about harm reduction you know is harm reduction for every step forward with harm reduction it, is, it seems like there's a step back there's another headline about somebody, you know, being in the same neighborhood as aerosol, fentanyl and passing out, you know, for every every effort made to educate people on on these types of things, on what works, there's another or group organizing against the supervised consumption site. So if I didn't feel some hope, I wouldn't do the work. And to me, you always have to work at work at two levels. You, you work for transformative system change, and then you also do what you can to help people who are in the system right now. That's kind of what I do. I just think about, you know, maybe drug courts won't exist because we have a better solution one day. Right now, people are in drug court. I want their lives to be better. I want them to be treated with more dignity and more, you know, have more safety as they figure out whatever it is they want to change in their life. So I think you just work at both levels and, and you hope to see, you know, the needle move a little bit. But yeah, it's a, it's a slow, it's a slog. Yeah, it is a slog. So uh, thank you for doing the work. Dave, where can people find you online? Uh, I'm on Twitter at David E. W. Lucas. Um, and uh, yeah, if you if you ever want to chat about these types of things, you can reach me through uh, the Health and Justice Action Lab. Um, I'm on the website there. And I think my email address should be there too. So 
I'm always happy to talk about this kind of stuff. Yeah, great. Thank you for coming on the show. This is really informative, and I think people will really resonate with this. Yeah, thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Narcotica, an independent production by Troy Farah, Christopher Morath, and Zachary Siegel. I'm your co-producer, Aaron Ferguson. If you like the show, you can find out more at narcocast.com and support us by joining our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash narcotica. Patrons get free stickers, which are personally mailed to them, and can request a shout-out on the show. And now, patrons can even get 30% off merch in our new store, which is at narcocast.myshopify.com. We have t-shirts and coffee mugs, one that says, there are drugs in here, which is awesome. More stuff will be added soon. As always, we're so grateful to the folks that make this show possible.